0: Namotasa bhagavato arahato sammasam bhutasa, namotasa bhagavato arahato sammasam bhutasa, namotasa bhagavato arahato sammasam bhutasa, uthang dammang thought it might be useful this evening to speak for a little while about one of the aspects of the Buddha's teaching that sometimes gets misrepresented Um, as Buddhism enters mainstream uh, society in the West. The teachings do tend to take on their own um, meaning. It's not sometimes the same thing as the the Buddha actually intended them to and um, we have uh, various school groups come here to the monastery as probably some of you will know and it's always interesting to hear their views on what they've been taught about Buddhism mm. what the Buddha had to say and and so uh, yeah, one of these things that I was thinking about that is often misre- misrepresented is The Buddha talked about upeka, or equanimity, Um, and it's true, uh, he did speak about equanimity a lot. But just what we mean by that, or just what he meant by that, uh, we need to be quite careful, because some of the earlier translators said that uh, it means indifference, translated equanimity or, or upeka, Word as indifference, and but if you look at the context, you know, it's clearly not indifference. Like, well, the, uh, the one of the best known aspects of the, the tradition, in the Theravada tradition anyway, the, the teachings on the, the uh, ten paramitas goes through the list of all these these qualities or virtues or forces of goodness, these ten perfections or ten paramitas, and, and the last one, number ten. Is equanimity, but before that you've got all these other lists of virtues, you've got uh, dana, the generosity, and then morality, renunciation, determination, uh, wisdom, actually I shouldn't have started out on this because I always miss this one out, um, and then there's energy, honesty, patience, loving kindness, and equanimity, is somebody going to correct me, is that right? I think that's right. And when equanimity is put in that context, you can see it's not talking about indifference. I and mean, this is alongside all these other profound virtues, or, or in uh, the Buddha's teaching on the, the four divine abidings: you know, loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and, and equanimity. And so, I think it's important to see the context in which the Buddha talked about this particular quality. And not misrepresented, not misunderstood, because indifference is a is not a very attractive quality. I think um, the last pope, uh, was name? John Paul II? He wrote a little booklet uh, just before his trip to Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and uh, it was a book that was I think supposed to inspire Christians about their daily life issues, but also he did a brief little commentary on Buddhism. I think it was called Crossing Over the Threshold of Hope, something like that. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote a, a beautiful, um response to this, this, um these comments by, by the Pope. And, and in there he actually, he, he says that uh, the uh, pinnacle of Buddhist realization is realizing the state of perfect indifference with regards to the world. That's what he says. And then, but he also goes on to say that the Buddha's enlightenment was realisation of the fact that the world is bad and the source of all suffering and evil. And uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, John Paul was quite clued up on a lot of things, but he was seriously uninformed and, or misinformed on that one. Maybe it was Ratzinger. Yeah, they've made him into the Pope. I he had a few curious things to say about interfaith dialogue, and maybe he helped the Pope write that. Really, thoroughly misinformed article, and uh, you know the idea that 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 uh, the Buddha was talking about indifference with regards to the world, and he didn't. Certainly, the Buddha didn't say that the world was bad. You know, the Buddha never said something like the world is bad. I mean, he did use the word bad or evil, papa, papa, and papa, I means bad or evil, and, but that was talking about actions based on greed, aversion, and delusion. The world cannot be bad, and the world is just so. Yeah. And he did say that all compounded things are suffering or are dukkha. But the idea, for instance, this is another word, another concept that's misrepresented the word of dukkha, to say that that everything is suffering, that misrepresents what he was saying. He did say sabayi. Sankaru atta nibindati viṣuddhi, Which means basically that all compounded things are dukkha. But if we see the truth of this dukkha, then we're perfectly free. And when he's talking about seeing the truth of dukkha, He wasn't putting a value judgment on things. He wasn't saying everything is bad or the source of all evil for mankind, which is what the Pope was saying. It's like saying something is hot. If you say the fire is hot, that's not a value judgment. It's just what it does is it teaches you not to hang on to it. If you grasp fire, you burn. Now, by saying that things, all things, all compounded things are dukkha, it's like saying all compounded things... If you grasp them, you're going to hurt. Because all compounded things are impermanent. And if you try and force them to be a certain way when it's not in their nature, you want things to be permanent. When they're not permanent, what's going to happen? You're going to generate stress. And so by pointing out that all things are dukkha, it didn't mean that it's not a value judgment on things. It's just, it's just actually helping us get the right kind of relationship with regards to things. And likewise with holding up upekha, as a, uh, a heart quality worth cultivating, it's not indifference in the sense of not feeling or not caring, but it's feeling and caring with right perspective, with even mindedness. Even mindedness is probably uh, a better word for translate better way of translating upeka. Even mindedness in the face of change so that even though things are changing all the time, we don't get blown over by them. I mean change is a fact. That just happens. But a wise perspective, an equanimous perspective, means that we can accord with the change. And so he wanted to point out how to how to have this how to have this heart quality of equanimity so that we can accord with the change. Not it's not a judgment on, on, on things and and as a saying, it's listed alongside the uh, the other four divine abidings of these heart qualities, or what Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote in his article he was saying these, these four social attitudes, of loving kindness and compassion and altruistic joy and equanimity. And these need to be cultivated together. So certainly cultivating loving kindness, where... Put time aside to sit and actually imbue the heart with the wish that all beings be well. That's, that's not indifference, is it? I mean, that's really caring, really, really consciously caring. And as you, as you know, in the chant that we we do, or the chant we're supposed to do, last week we didn't do it because of my lack of mindfulness. But uh, the chant we normally do on a Sunday evening, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, even as a mother protects. Uh, with her life, her child, her only child, the image of this total selfless caring. Yeah. And the benefit of that is, is experienced by the individual, but also experienced by others. You, you, you're around somebody who is truly loving, you know, truly caring. What, what does it feel like when you're with somebody, or, or in a place? Uh, have you met... Um, Have you met Harry the Hedgehog yet? We have a hedgehog here called... Well, I've called him Harry because he's all covered in spikes, which makes him look a bit frightening and awful because I know another Harry who looks spiky and awful, but actually on the inside he's a real softy. And uh, so Harry the Hedgehog is all spiky on the outside, but actually he's a real softy and he's lovely. And he's not afraid of anybody, Harry the Hedgehog. And I think my theory about Harry the Hedgehog is that it's because he walked into this environment when he was a little baby, because he couldn't have gotten otherwise. a little weeny baby hedgehog must have walked in, and he's grown up in this loving environment, and so he doesn't have any fear. Because Harry the Hedgehog, he just walked right past you. You know, hedgehogs don't normally do that. They all curl up and they get afraid. But not Harry. Harry understands. Harry feels the loving-kindness of this place. And Now, this is not really empirical proof, but I... I mean, these things do happen. That uh, you got somebody who can just, you know, know, when you're hating them and they love you back, what happens? There's a transformative power, transformative for the individual and transformative in society. And the Buddha advocated as a transformative force for the individual and a transformative force in society. And compassion, to you know, to not just develop indifference, but also to develop uh, compassion, to to feel the force of compassion, to become intimately familiar with the force of compassion within oneself. Are we able to feel that for ourselves? Uh, It's important that we do. Uh, Often meditators make the mistake of of just focusing on our faults. It's easy also to uh, focus on the faults of the world. You can see all the criminals that there are around doing things and, and there's so much of it around and the intensity of it now, the bombardment of it, 24 hour news and um, you can, it's very very easy just to, to spend your whole time focused on the lack of compassion. But what's encouraged in practice is to intentionally choose to recognise compassion when we see it, like again, with the mother, with the child, and the mother's willingness to sacrifice her own well-being when the child is ill. She doesn't resent the child. She might have a few moments where she flutters a little bit. (laughs) But but the the mother's heart is basically the heart of compassion, that no matter how many times she has to get up in the night, she's willing to do it. and No matter how long the child has been sick, she's willing to stay there for the child. And and it's beautiful. And so when we do see this... uh, the practice that's encouraged is to delight in that compassion. When we see compassion, to really enjoy it. I was very moved the other day. I saw, um, on our building site down there, some of you may have parked down there and you're seeing all the work that's been going on down there lately. We had this, had a, well, the JCB is still there and we had this great big crusher on site. This great big mean machine, big red mean machine that, but JCB would lift up all these boulders that have been on their building site for the last five years and would dump these big boulders, lumps of cement and stuff in there, and it would just whoo, grind it all up. And then at the end it would spit out this lovely, nice, evenly shaped gravel, which is going to fill in around the gas tank and make a nice um, car park for us down there. And so this mean grinding machine's been going down there for hours and hours every day for most of last week. And the guy operating it, you should have seen him. I mean, big, I mean, big guy. I mean, just monstrous fella. And and I was down there the other day watching him working. It was kind of interesting to see this big, mean machine and this guy operating the JCB, all the neat things they can do. With it. They can turn and swivel and dig and so on. And then he stopped the machine and jumped off. And I thought, oh, something's broken. But what he did was actually he got off and walked over and he got down and he saw a little frog about this big that was actually in the pile of the so We got a little frog and went out and went over the other side of the property and and put it in a a safe place. (laughs) It was so beautiful. (laughs) You see that kind of caring. He was afraid the frog was going to suffer. When when something like that happens, to delight in it, to really enjoy. Because when we delight in compassion, the heart grows in compassion. When we delight in love, you, you look at a mother and the way she looks at a child and you delight in that gaze the mother has for her child. To really enjoy watching loving kindness, to enjoy watching compassion strengthens the heart, nourishes the heart, and also with altruistic joy. No. Mudita. Not a quality that that's easy to cultivate generally and, and not something that that there's too much of around. Um but to find opportunities to cultivate it, like, like yesterday, was it possible to really feel altruistic joy for the Portuguese? They must be so happy now to be through and, and, you know, England lost, but, you know, that's, these things happen. Well, we can move on to that with equanimity. <laughs> but, you know, this altruistic joy, it feels so happy. The Portuguese were so happy at the moment. That, They're really high as a kite. And I was talking to Ajahn Yanarato at Amrawati and there's two Portuguese down there who are going to be ordained next week. And I'm surprised they're going ahead with it. I thought they might have postponed the ordination. (laughs) But no, they're going ahead with it. And uh, all the Portuguese are really happy at the moment. And the thing is to look at their happiness and to delight in it. That's how we cultivate uh, mudita, to really enjoy seeing people being happy. And it's the opposite of jealousy. I mean, you see, jealousy is such a, an unpleasant and regrettable quality, and the cause of so much, so much crime and, and so much breakdown in relationship, individually, individuals, and and nationally, and so on. And, and what's encouraged what well, the Buddha specifically? Encouraged was really cultivating this quality of uh, altruistic joy, not selfish joy, but when we see other people being happy. To really try and delight in that. I admit that it's actually, as a New Zealander, it's probably easier for me to feel happy for the Portuguese than for most of you. But maybe you can find another example when you see people being happy to make the point of really delighting in their happiness. As we exercise this appreciative awareness to appreciate this quality in others, then that quality within ourselves grows. And equanimity. You know, so alongside these other three, as I think Bhikkhu Bodhi calls social attitudes, or also referred to as the divine abidings, the Brahma Viharas, you know, to, we have this fourth quality of equanimity, or upeka. And so you can see that it's, it's, it's balanced, these things are balanced, to, to feel what we feel with regards to joy and gladness in our own and others, but what's also required and what's also important is to have an even-mindedness because with joy, with gladness, actually you can get easily carried away and you can become, you become too sensitive, actually. You, the heart is too full of, of joy and gladness and compassion and, and the world can become um, just too painful to live in. So it's, it's very important that we, we have this even-mindedness, but it's not just a, a lofty, detached indifference. Yeah. It's a sensitive even-mindedness. And it means that in the face of disappointment, again, like the example of a mother with a child, even when the mother's child doesn't do well, yeah. even when a mother's child turns out to yeah. be criminal, there's still the acceptance and the, and the understanding. Because essentially, the essential element of equanimity is that is uh, is based on wisdom. And you'll see when we we chanted the reflection after the meditation just now that the cultivation of loving kindness was "May I be well." The cultivation of compassion was was "May all beings be free from suffering." The cultivation of altruistic joy was "May beings not be parted from the good fortune they've attained," and then the cultivation of equanimity is that all beings are the owners of their action. I am the owner of my action, heir to my action, born of my action, abide supported by my intentional action. Whatever action, whatever come I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. All beings are the heirs of their actions. In other words, what it's doing is opening us up to a bigger picture. There are causes there are causes and effects; that it's not just an accident. So yes, we feel that natural, warm-hearted sensitivity to the suffering, our own suffering, and the suffering of others. But there needs to be the cultivation of the understanding that there is a bigger picture. That even when, when suffering doesn't cease, or things don't go as we hope they would go, that, there, that the heart doesn't fall; that we don't get pulled into. Uh, pain and despair, fear, anxiety, worry and doubt as a result. If equanimity is established, if we're in touch with the bigger picture, if there's wisdom functioning, well, then there's a better chance that we won't get pulled in. So also, um, yeah, you'll see the word, we the talked about equanimity on many occasions. Also, when we talked about the, uh, seven factors of enlightenment. You know, these factors, the bojunga, the, the limbs of enlightenment that talked about the last one, the pinnacle, as with the ten parameters, as with the four divine abidings, the pinnacle of the seven factors of enlightenment is upeka, equanimity. You know, it starts off with mindfulness. And the first has got to be this watchfulness. If we're, if we're suffering and we're interested, And how can I find my way through this? There needs to be watchfulness. If we're not suffering, well, there's no issue. There's no problem. We won't do anything. We'll just get around and enjoy life anyway. But if there is any degree of suffering, frustration, despair, feeling of limitation, which is another, I think, useful way of translating the word dukkha, if we have this experience of of being limited, then... We start getting interested in watching it. You know, what's, what's really going on here? We don't. From the Buddhist perspective, he wasn't just offering us a doctrine that everybody has to believe in, and then we feel good about the shared belief, and then we hope that when we die, it's all going to turn out to be better. That's definitely not. That's definitely not his argument. Rather, he was saying was that if we exercise the potential we have as human beings to develop our hearts and minds work with the quality of attention we've got, become rightly watchful, develop sati, mindfulness, and then get interested, and then we start to ask questions. So the second factor of enlightenment is dhamma vichaya, or investigation of reality. And then when there is real investigation, and we start to, with our interest, with our mindfulness, with our, our asking the right question in the right way at the right time, what happens is that, there's a tremendous energy gets built up, enthusiasm, virya, which is the third of the seven factors of enlightenment. Virya starts getting generated, and when there's virya, well then it's followed on to bliss, pity, and then pity or bliss moves on to pasati, or which I like to translate as relaxation or ease or tranquility, the letting go. Yeah, there's the mindfulness, there's the asking questions the investigation, the energy the enthusiasm and then there's the, the bliss and then there's the letting go because actually you don't want to stay with bliss you know, Some sometimes bliss can be very nice and refreshing and intoxicating even, uh, you don't want to stick with it uh, the, the practice is really maturing then it moves on to opacity or relaxation or ease or tranquility then it moves on to focus or maturation or maturity of of concentration samadhi, and then eventually arrives at perfect equanimity. And so, this uh, but this, again, this equanimity is not is not a detached or philosophical aloofness that means that we're not feeling what's going on. Rather, it's the it's the equipoise, it's the it's the even-mindedness that comes as a result of having seen clearly. Yeah. when there's understanding that this is the way things are are like a parent with a child you know in the beginning you have children you know you maybe I don't know what it's like being a parent well as the abbot of a monastery put it that way you know in the beginning of the first time you're an abbot of a monastery and, and young Anagarika has come and you think oh this is a good one he's going to really take the training seriously and, and then you give them lots of support and attention and and then maybe they become summoneras, maybe they don't, maybe they become junior bhikkhus, maybe they don't. But mostly, after a few years, they all run off and find a nice woman and then go and do something else. And <laughs> Mostly, but some of them don't, you know, and I, you know, some of them stay. But, uh, and in the beginning, you know, if you're attached to wanting them to stay, wanting them to become, you know, strong bhikkhus and confident and to continue their inquiries through the rest of their life and to share the benefit of their lives with others, if you attach to that perfectly understandable desire then you end up getting very disappointed and you can get quite better and I've seen this happen uh, certainly in others over the years a sense of after all I've done for you, now I suspect that parents have something like this as well some of you smiling and nodding (laughs) after all I've done for you well, that's the lack of equanimity. It's fine to love the junior monks and who love your children and to want them to do well. But to love, to have merta, to have uh, mudita, karuna mudita, but also to have upeka. You know, to have this sense of the bigger picture. This is just what people do. You know? Some people will stay. And some won't. Uh, Ajahn Chah's image was, you know, we, I remember mean, we came to Watnanachat once and and there'd been several people who had recently left the community and he said, well, it's just like mango trees, you know. Sometimes the blossoms fall off. That's like Anagarika's leaving. That's the blossoms fall off the tree. And then sometimes you get little green fruit. You get little, little baby fruit and then they fall off the tree. That's like Samanera's leaving. And then you get bigger green fruit and they fall off the tree and that's like junior monks leaving. And then occasionally, he says, you get nice, ripe, orange, juicy mangoes. And that's like, you know, him. <laughs> he didn't say that, but when monks really reach their full maturity. And... But that's just the way it is. That's just what happens in nature. That's, that's just the way it is. That's equanimity. That's just the way it is. But if we come in with this idealistic notion, that's just the way it is, and kind of ram this on life, that's just the way it is. You know, those people are starving and in Africa because of their bad karma, That's just the way it is. Well, that's maybe, you know, one perspective, but it's certainly lacking the other perspectives. That's not the Buddha's teaching. That's certainly lacking the loving kindness, the compassion, the altruistic joy. So it's not real equanimity. That's a kind of pseudo-equanimity. That is indifference. And if that's what the Pope was referring to, well, actually, that's not Buddhism. I don't know what that is. It's certainly nothing to do with Buddhism. Rather, this quality of Fully matured compassion and loving kindness and sensitivity—they can feel what we feel, but there's also the understanding that means that we don't get defined by what we feel, like the meditation on impermanence, you know, the reflection on impermanence, that or, or gain and loss, winning and losing, praise and blame, honor and insignificance, the eight worldly dhammas. Now, anybody watching the game yesterday should have been reflecting on the eight worldly dhammas. You know, these things happen. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You don't want to get too carried away. It's okay to get enthusiastic, but you don't want to get depressed and have to go out and get drunk afterwards. So it's how to feel enthusiastic, how to feel passionate, enthusiastic, and sensitive about life, but without getting lost in that passionate passionate enthusiasm. That's the trick, oh. This contemplation on the law of karma is one way of doing it, actually to regularly reflect that, the, that there are causes for the effects that we experience in life. And also in our meditation, to look at what happens, look at what happens when we even, even when we attach to pleasure, or when we attach to desire, like you go to meditate and you have the desire to, to really do well and to really develop in your meditation, does it help? Well, if in the beginning, when that desire is kind of naive enthusiasm, it can be an inspiring motivation in our practice. But then we have some good experiences in meditation. and We all know what happens. You come back to meditation again, wanting to repeat that experience, have more happiness, that desire, that attachment to the pleasure, or that attachment to the memory of the pleasure that came last time, produces a desire that's not helpful. Or we're suffering when we're feeling frustrated and disappointed. Like you really want people to be well, you want the community to be harmonious, you want people to be wise and compassion, understanding, and and that's a wonderful thing to want. You know, I'd like all the world's governments to cooperate and to be wise and and so mutually supportive, and these big multinational companies are like to be really generous and understanding and helpful and so on, and that's a good thing to want. But if there's not the wisdom perspective, if there's not the wisdom that sees what's going on in relationship to that desire, then what happens? I become that desire. I, wanting people to be happy, harmonious, and is born. And then when people are not happy, harmonious, and contented, then I get disappointed. I suffer. And so that's the That's the wheel of birth and death. That's samsara. That's that's what happens as a result of grasping. That's the lack of wisdom. That's the lack of perspective. And so the cultivation of equanimity, part of it, is this: in our meditation is recognizing for ourselves. We're sitting there and you're wanting some suffering to pass away. That's perfectly understandable. But if we grasp that wanting to pass away, does it help? No. And we need to see that. And so we can see it as it's happening in the situations like that in, the, in, our day, in our formal meditation or in our daily life also when things happen. Is there equanimity? It's so often people misunderstand this word equanimity. They think you're not supposed to have any feelings or preferences. It's the relationship, our understanding of our feelings and preferences that makes the difference. Can you see something disagreeable and still maintain even-heartedness? Not as an act of will, not as an insensitivity, as sensitivity, but still maintain from perspective of understanding. Yeah. Like when I came in this evening and started to bow in front of the shrine here, I realised that one of the plates of glass up here has been broken. Now these plates of glass up here they haven't been there that long and and some person has been probably, you know, I don't know, momentarily heedless. But maybe they weren't. Maybe it's just a pure accident. But whatever, they've broken this piece of glass. Now, how do I feel about that? Is there equanimity? Well, I'm pleased to say there's more equanimity than there used to be. And so we, we can see that in our lives. Yeah. We can see equanimity developing, or the lack of it. When we feel disappointed, can there be equanimity? Yes, there can. And so to have faith in this, you know, to, really, to trust in this principle, that we can cultivate equanimity. Of course we want to be loving, of course we want to be compassionate, of course altruistic joy is wonderful, but also we can cultivate equanimity. And even the word, actually, if we understand this argument, if we understand the principle that the Buddha was referring to, then even just reminding ourselves of that principle, using the word in our meditation, equanimity. When you're looking at some regrettable event on television, or or enduring some experience in your meditation patience and equanimity are profound forces for transformation and it's really unfortunate when they're misunderstood so anyway I hope these thoughts this evening are of some help and support in your own contemplation thank you very much for your attention Mm